If you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The sermon this morning is Raised with Christ, part 2. If you recall last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This morning we will be looking at verses 12 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. And the key words for our worshipers in training are raised, pitied, and dead. Now last week we talked about these first few verses and what the Apostle Paul called of first importance. And I want to look at that again and read through that so we are reminded going into this next section what it is that Paul has said is of first importance. Of all that we know in the world, of all that we look at, of all that we are told day in and day out, what is it that is of first importance? The Apostle Paul answered that question for us last week. Let's look at that beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so Paul gave us a basic proclamation of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, and then He appeared to hundreds. The resurrection of Christ was confirmed by hundreds of eyewitnesses. And remember, Paul told uh, those he was writing to, don't take just my word for it. There are many who are still living who are also eyewitness to this Christ who has raised from the dead. Ask them. And he reminds them that he himself, Paul, was an enemy of Christ. He was a persecutor of the people of God. And he reminds them that he himself is no longer Saul because of the grace of God. And so he emphasizes what is at the heart of the gospel. What is at the heart of the Christian faith? And that is the grace of God to transform sinners, to regenerate a sinner's heart, to become lovers and followers of God. So Paul told the Corinthians, this is what I preached to you. This is what you believed. This is what you stand in. That Jesus died, Jesus was raised, and hundreds saw Him, including me. And if you don't believe me, just go ask some of the others. Jesus is alive. And that was the reality that we looked at last week. This is of first importance. If we lose this truth, if we lose this reality then we lose Christianity. We lose the gospel. 
And so it is very much of first importance. And so we continue on this morning, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So if Christ is raised then why wouldn't you believe or why would you deny that Christians will also be raised from the dead? Now, apparently there were perhaps some Corinthians who were saying or some teachers in their midst who were saying that Christians, when they die, do not raise from the dead. And so Paul is going to address Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of Christians from the dead. Paul is beginning his argument by pointing out the absurdity of the error that some Corinthians were making. Jesus was raised, but Christians will not be raised. And Paul is a rhetorical master. He does very well here. I wish I had his gift here. He points to the illogical conclusion of the Corinthians to prove his point. Namely, that those who die in Christ will, like Christ, be raised from the dead. And he brings it up by asking this question. And he sort of says, now let me get this straight. What you're saying is that you agree that Christ was raised from the dead, but you don't believe that Christians will be raised from the dead. He goes on in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so if we're not raised from the dead, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. It would be pointless. That's strong language. It's very Strong language. So, if this is it, if this life is it, if there's nothing else beyond now, if we just believe annihilationism, this is the false teaching that when we die, we just simply cease to exist. Our bodies become one with the dirt, and that is it. If this is it, then Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection are absolutely pointless. We gain nothing. And so Paul explains what it means through six examples of what is is lost if there is no resurrection. If we die and become one with the dirt, there's six things we lose that Paul outlines. This is by no way an exhaustive list. It's a sampling. So what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of Christians from the dead. They go hand in hand. We don't need one without the other. If we have one without the other, then it's simply pointless. They go hand in hand. So first, in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. So first, he says, our preaching is in vain if Christ is not raised from the dead. What is the point? If there is no resurrection, what's gained? Remember, we looked at a while ago, it is through what Paul called the foolishness of the message preached. Chapter 1 and verse 21 of 1 Corinthians. He says that the preached message that God uses the foolishness of preaching to bring about new life, 
to regenerate the hearts of unbelievers, to be born again in Christ Jesus. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then there is no reason for preaching because there would be no need for regeneration. And that leads to the second part, and the second example, and that's the second part of verse 14. If Christ had not been raised, then your faith is in vain. And he says the same thing in verse 17. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. So if there is no resurrection, your faith is worthless. It is pointless. You are wasting your time. It is an act of futility. If we remain in the grave, we're wasting our efforts. What we're doing right now is completely pointless. And now the implications for this in all religious systems of the world are huge. We can say of any religious belief, no matter what it is, if what you believe is false, then your faith is worthless. It gains you nothing. In fact, we conclude from the Bible that not only if, you're, if, it's, if it's false, is it worthless, it's also deadly. If your philosophy is life stinks, you die, the end, it's worthless. What are we doing? But hear the contrary all the time to this, right? We hear the contrary to this all the time. You believe in Jesus? Oh, that's nice. He made you a different person? That's great. That's good for you. I'm so glad that works for you. I got a great illustration. The Lord just gave it to me yesterday. Right in the middle of studying. Old guy I went to school with, middle school, I think, maybe elementary school, into high school. Befriended me on Facebook. He wrote to me. You can go look at it if you want. Honestly, a pastor of all things. I got to tell you, Nick, didn't see that one coming. His name is Eric. And so I responded. I thought about it a little bit. I thought, what can I say to this guy? And so I wrote, "'Tis what makes what I preach and believe so amazing." Gave him a little cultural example. Recently, Lil Wayne, who's a hip-hop artist, read the Bible while in prison, and he concluded, quote, I like the parts where some character was once this, but he ended up being that. Like, he'd be dissing Jesus, and then he ends up being a saint. That was cool. End quote. That's what happened to me. A new heart, a new life, new hope, new joy. I didn't see it coming either, but I'm glad it did. Good to hear from you, Eric. I perused your blog a bit. It's funny stuff. I'll add it to my reader. I hope you're doing well. His response. Give yourself a little credit, man. You weren't a bad guy to begin with. I dig what you're saying, though, and certainly concur. And thanks for checking out the blog. I'll do my best to keep the Lord's name in vainsies on the minimum. No promises. In other words, 
I'm glad that's working for you. And you do your thing, and in the meantime, I'll do my thing, and I hope it doesn't offend you too much. So the next step is Eric gets an email from Nick with the gospel. (laughs) This is the prevalent idea in our culture. It works for you, that's great. This is what works for me. We all get along with all of this. Your faith is wonderful. You feel good. I'm so happy for you. Let's just call it even. But what is Paul saying here? If there is no resurrection from the dead, it's not nice. It's not great. And it doesn't work for you because you die and you're dead. And you're not forgiven. You're not dwelling with Christ forever. You're separated from God forever. That kind of faith is not great. You see, the problem with false religion is you don't realize it doesn't work until it's too late, right? At the end of life, one might say, it's, it's working. I'm great. And then, oh, I'm, I'm in hell. It didn't work out how I hoped it would. I was a happy Buddhist and now I'm a hot Buddhist. <laughs> Our faith is not for this life. It's for eternity. So if there is no resurrection from the dead, it's pointless. It's vain. It's futile. And if your faith works for you now, and it makes you feel better or whatever, if in the end it doesn't save you for eternity, it doesn't work. It's worthless. So the issue is not if it works for you and makes you happy, that's nice and that's great. That's subjective garbage. I had a family member say to me a while back, she told me of her children, she said, I don't care what my kids believe in, just that they believe in something. That's like saying, I don't care how you kill yourself, I just want you to do it. Look, faith is not a subjective thing. It is objectively rooted in the question, will this get me through the grave? And if the answer is no, because there is no resurrection, then it's pointless faith. It's worthless. It is vain. It is futile. And so he argues, without the resurrection, our faith is pointless. Third, He says that if there is no resurrection, in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if there is no resurrection, but we say that there is, we are lying about God, therefore making us false witnesses. And to lie about God is a deadly business. Remember, Paul wrote to the Galatian church telling them that false teachers, those who lie about God, those who are false witnesses, are to be anathema. Literally, he's saying they are to be damned to hell for speaking wrongly and leading others in a wrong understanding of God. 
So if there is no resurrection, then the apostles and the Christian church today lie about God. And according to the scriptures, we are to be anathema. Fourth, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Our greatest need as sinful human beings is the forgiveness of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God without fail. We've all done this. And the penalty of sin? Death. And so without the forgiveness of sin, there is no hope of anything else from God. The foundation for every blessing from God is that God won't hold our sins against us. Everything we hope in, everything we hope for, hinges on being forgiven. No resurrection... No forgiveness. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 says, Christ was delivered up. In other words, He was crucified for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So by Christ's death, He paid the penalty for our sins and purchased our acquittal, our justification our forgiveness. And since His work on the cross was so decisive, God the Father raised Jesus the Son from death to validate our forgiveness and vindicate His Son's righteousness and to celebrate and confirm the work of justification. So if Christ is not resurrected, we remain in our sin because Christ remains in the grave. And there is no justification. That's terrible news. Fifth, verse 18, if there is no resurrection, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So, Dead Christians are truly dead. In fact, it's significant because Paul doesn't just say they die or they are dead, but they perish. So, not just physically dead, but they come under the full wrath of God. They face the full judgment of God if there is no resurrection. And sixth, he says in verse 19, if there is no resurrection... And if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, look, if there is no resurrection, can't we just say, oh well, it was a good life. Isn't Christianity the good life? So if it's a delusion, it doesn't really matter. We're gone, so who cares? It was a good life. Well, the Bible doesn't say that the Christian life is a good life. A good life doesn't typically include pick up your cross, take up your electric chair, take up your noose, and follow me. That doesn't sound like the good life. 
Do you think the Apostle Paul would say, this is the good life? Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead, imprisoned. The good life. No, if this is the good life, we don't just say, oops, oh well, I was wrong. The world is to pity every last one of us. We are to be pitied above all men if this is the good life and we've hoped in nothing. But, Paul gives us a great but in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what that means is that we can look at what's lost without the resurrection and state positively as truths to behold, truths to love, truths to proclaim with gladness. Our preaching and our teaching is powerful and true. We preach the foolishness of the cross and the resurrection with complete confidence because Romans 1.16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we see in the end, God will redeem His elect from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And so our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is well-founded unidentified, documented, substantiated truth. It is confirmed in Christ's resurrection. It is confirmed by hundreds of eyewitnesses and in the new lives of God's people who have been radically transformed by the gospel. We are forgiven of our sins. We're not left dead in our sins. If we've repented and believed the gospel, we are no longer dead in our trespasses in sins. But Ephesians 2 tells us we are alive together with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Those who die in Christ eternally dwell with Christ. So we don't really die. We just go to sleep. And we awaken in the presence of Christ. And in the end, we're not to be pitied. Rather, we're to be envied. Because we possess so great a salvation. We taste not death, but we press on without fear or condemnation. Because our life here is but a mist. But life with Christ is forever. Oh, what a glorious reality is verse 20. Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. He goes on to say, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, the first, the best, the greatest. So here's what goes down. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that if we are at home with the body, then we are away from the Lord. So the opposite is true. If we're away from the body, then we are present with the Lord. So instantly upon the death of a believer, the soul departs from the body and is present with Christ. The soul. Hence, in Luke 23.43... Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross next to Him who has repented of his sins and believed on Christ as Lord and Savior. He says, Today you will be with Me in paradise. 
And so a body may be in the ground, but a soul is in heaven. The immortal soul of the Christian is in an instant with Christ. And the non-Christian, in hell. So what of Paul's talk about our resurrection? In verse 52, we'll get there. Not today. At the sound of the last trumpet, he says, at the final judgment... Our bodies will be raised from the dead. They will be perfected and united with our souls in the eternal state. And so there is a bodily resurrection of believers. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So who's he talking about? The first man, Adam. Death was brought into creation by the fall of Adam. Who's the second man? A Christ. By Christ, resurrection of the dead has come. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So in Adam we're dead. We have the imputed sin of Adam. The sin of Adam has been placed upon all who descend from him. That's every one of us. From the womb, said the psalmist, from conception we have a nature of sin. In Christ, at the new birth, When we are made alive together with Christ, we are raised with Christ, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. So we receive the sin of Adam, and in Christ we receive the righteousness of Christ. This is the great exchange. I give my sins to Christ, place them on the cross. They are punished by the full wrath of the Father. And in turn, I receive the righteousness of of Christ, the right standing before the Father because of what Christ has done, because of how Christ lived perfectly on my behalf. And so every man everywhere throughout the history of mankind is either in Adam or in Christ. Those are the two options. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. Verse 23, but each... In his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ was resurrected. He was the first. He was the greatest. And then those who are in Christ are resurrected afterward, able to be so because of the resurrection of Christ in the first place. Move along. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. John Calvin said this of verse 24. What we find in the prophets as to the darkening of the sun and moon, that God alone may shine forth while it has begun to be fulfilled under the reign of Christ, will nevertheless not be fully accomplished until the last day. But then every height shall be brought low, that the glory of God may alone shine forth. Farther, we know that all earthly principalities and honors are connected exclusively with the keeping up of the present life, and consequently are a part of the world. Hence it follows that they are temporary. 
Hence, as the world will have an end, so also will government and magisterium and laws and distinctions of ranks and different orders of dignities and everything of that nature. There will be no more any distinction between servant and master, between king and peasant, between magistrate and private citizen. Nay more, there will be then an end put to angelic principalities in heaven and to ministries and superiorities in the church that God may exercise His power and dominion by Himself alone and not by the hands of men or angels. The angels, it is true, will continue to exist and they will also retain their distinction. The righteous too will shine forth, every one according to the measure of his grace. But the angels will have to resign the dominion, which they now exercise in the name and by the commandment of God. Bishops, teachers, prophets will cease to hold these distinctions and will resign the office which they now discharge. So the reign of Christ, which Paul envisions here, is a reign of conquest, in the sense that it is and will be a spiritual triumph over all of the forces of evil as it saves and subdues the elect of God and eventually raises them from the dead. And so there is no need for earthly rule and principality. Everything falls under the reign and rule of Christ alone. So Christ is reigning and ruling right now, invisibly over all the universe. Notice in verse 25 how he states it. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. So many believe that the reign of Christ over the universe will begin at his second coming when he puts enemies under his feet. But verse 25 is really saying exactly the opposite of that. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies underfoot. So that word until means two things. Christ is reigning now. Colossians 3.1 Christ is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling. The kingdom does not begin at the second coming. It is ongoing now. It was inaugurated at the first coming of Christ. And secondly, that word until points to the fact that Christ's kingly warfare against His enemies is going on right now and the reign of Jesus is present right now, not just in the future. That is very hope-filled. <laughs> and then, at the second coming, the final judgment takes place. The sheep of God are separated from the goats. It's all sorted out. It is all fixed. And as Psalm 8.6 says, which Paul is quoting from, all things are under His feet. And in verse 26, we see the final enemy will be put to death. Death itself. Death will die. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So what does all of that mean? What is gained at the resurrection? 
God's reign, God's authority is established eternally. No more sickness, no more pain, no more death. Are you frustrated with this life? Christians should be. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of all men. There's a sense of something missing. Something has gone terribly wrong and we sense that in this life. For the Christian, this life right here, right now is as bad as it gets. That's good news. For the non-Christian, this life truly is their best life now. Right here and right now is as good as it gets. But believers belong to Christ and obtain God in heaven. Non-believers are in Adam and obtain their just reward in hell. So all of creation will exist with Christ ruling and reigning forever. Everything is put in subjection to Him. And so now Paul is going to begin to summarize verses 1 through 28 in verse 29. He begins to enumerate a few reasons why what we do is pointless apart from the resurrection. So let's read verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, the Mormons use this verse to justify their practice of baptizing the dead by proxy. And so if someone dies and they're not a Mormon, then they have someone else stand in their place and be baptized on their behalf. And so they believe that the dead are snatched from death into heaven. This verse raises a lot of debate. It's very unclear. But it obviously doesn't make it true when it's unclear, when it's properly interpreted. It's just unclear. There are a lot of true, unclear verses in the Bible. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, now in this life we see dimly. We don't see everything in its fullness and fully understand it. Remember when Peter said that some of Paul's writings were difficult stuff. Well, I think this is one of those things Peter was probably talking about. But Scripture is true whether we understand it or not. So what do we do? We need to rely on the perspicuity of Scripture. In other words, we interpret what is unclear with what is clear. We don't base our doctrines on unclear verses. That's how cults get started. We take what's clear to interpret what's unclear. Now, you notice me kind of talking around this verse, so I don't actually have to address it. (laughs) What do we know clearly? First, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die how many times? Once. Afterwards, judgment. So we die, judgment, heaven or hell. Secondly, we know, as Paul has stated repeatedly, 
As all of Scripture points out that we are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. This is personal faith in Christ, not someone else's faith on our behalf. The line to heaven is single file. And so, the Mormon idea of baptism of the dead is not only false, it's absolute heresy. But there are a lot of options. There are over 200 known interpretations of this verse. So the most definitive statement I'll give you on this verse is this. First, Mormons are wrong. Their understanding is heresy. And by the way, this is similar to the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory. That if we do enough here for someone else who's died, then we can snatch them out of death into heaven. That's heresy. That's foolishness. What's the point? Why proclaim, repent, and believe in this life if we simply dwell in death for a while until someone else does it for us? We make very little of Christ in such foolish speak. Secondly, there was some sort of practice relating to the fact that the people believed death wasn't the end. There is life after death. The Corinthians did believe that. So whatever the practice was, it was related to the idea that they believed in life after death. And third, whatever the practice was, Paul neither approves of it or rejects it. Therefore, we must simply focus in on the point that he is making. I'm not making any definitive statement about it because I don't know. And no one else you look at knows. And if they say they do, uh, they're probably a little full of themselves. So whatever the practice is, it, whatever the practice, whatever it is, along with any belief in the afterlife, is pointless without resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's point. If we're not resurrected from the dead then why all the talk and why the practices related to the afterlife? Pointless. He goes on, verse 30, Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So why take risks for the gospel's sake? Why die to self daily? Why fight enemies of biblical doctrine if in the end there is no resurrection from the dead? It's pointless. If there is no resurrection, let's just eat and drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then why should we waste our time loving our enemies? and engaging our lives in the church, and spending time in the Bible and in prayer, and on and on and on. Let's just get drunk and party hard and spend all of our money and live for today. That's what he's saying. If there is no resurrection, that's what this life amounts to. And so he rebukes them in the end. Verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
So he tells the Corinthians, come to your senses. Stop listening to and hanging around false teachers. If you don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead, then you're reading the wrong books and you're listening to the wrong sermons. Well, I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. I took a semester of physics and a semester of philosophy, and I'm really smart and I have a lot of objections. Listen, your, your rejecting the resurrection is not intellectual superiority. It's a hardness of heart. It is the hardness of heart that at the end of the day is truly the issue. These people are questioning the resurrection. They're not denying it. They're questioning it because what are they doing? They're they're sinning. And at the end of the day, they're left with this. If I believe in the resurrection, then I have to repent of sin and obey Jesus. But if I can somehow convince myself that there is no resurrection, then I don't have to stop sinning because nothing is going to happen after I die. I'll just be plant food and nothing will occur. This is the logical outgrowth of not believing in eternal life. And the postmodern condition is such that there is an obsession with the present, complete ignorance and complete lack of thought about what's to come. But our trajectory as Christians needs not be short term. We need to think biblically. We need to think heavenly. We need to think eternally. And we live eternally either as God's children or as God's enemies. We are not all God's children. And many, many people are God's enemies. And so here, Paul addresses the real problem. It's not that you're super smart. It's not that the evidence isn't there, because the evidence is there. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. There's eyewitnesses, Christian and non-Christian, all testify to these historical objective truths. And so some people look at it and say, well, I just don't believe them. But what they're saying is, I don't like them. There's a vast difference between not having sufficient evidence and, uh, and information and not having a willing heart to receive those truths. For some, these are truths that are just like bullets hitting off of a rock. Because the hard heart is like stone. And they say, I don't believe it. Or, I just question heaven and hell and the eternal state and the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because I love fornicating. Because I love my party life. Because I don't want to forgive my enemies. Because I want to stay bitter and angry and vengeful and mean-spirited. And I want to seek retribution on my own. I don't want to stop being a freeloader. I don't want to stop ripping people off. I don't want to stop doing what I want to do. I don't want to have accountability in my life and submit to authority. And so all of this means one thing. I want to be my own God and do whatever I want. And I don't want any other God to judge me or to sentence me, to look at my life and to evaluate it in some criteria that I didn't come up with myself. And in the end, I just want to die, and I don't want anyone to have authority over me. And I want to have the right to decide whether I go to heaven or hell. That's the issue. And Paul says, come to your senses. You would exchange Jesus for yourself? 
You would exchange heaven for hell? You would exchange slavery to sin in exchange for freedom in Christ? You would exchange holiness for disobedience? Life for death? Are you foolish? Are you that foolish to think simply because you question the truth that the truth no longer exists as truth? You know what? Bad company corrupts good character. And if you're being encouraged to question or deny Jesus and the eternal consequences of repentance and sin and trust in Him, then get away. Come to your senses. Come to repentance. Come to Jesus. The issue is that you're evil and you want to be your own God. That's the issue. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ is alive. That is the good news. I know Americans love to hear that Jesus was a nice guy and He died and He never rose. There's no heaven, no hell, no eternal state. There's no judgment, no consequences. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And the eyewitnesses teach. The enemies of Jesus who were converted teach that He rose from the dead. That He is the Lord God and Savior just like He said He was. And the good news is that He is alive today. The tomb is empty. That's it. It's a cause and effect. The cause, the tomb is empty. The effect of an empty tomb, everything else we delight in. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. That changes everything, doesn't it? It changes our life. It changes our death. It changes our eternal life. It changes everything. And by God's grace, we love our neighbors, and it changes Effingham County and Georgia and America and the nations, and that's what we want to see. That's what we expect to see, because God said it would be so. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very grateful to be able to gather together and to meditate on the fact, the great reality, that Jesus is alive. That there is resurrection from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead, and we too, as His children, at our death will be raised from the dead as well, to live and dwell and worship Jesus forever and ever and ever with your people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. What a great delight. Father, help none of us, not one in here, to trade that away, to be their own God in this life. Help us to put away that foolishness. Help us to throw ourselves on the living Christ. Help us to trust in all of the promises of the living Christ that are ours because He was resurrected from the dead and we too will be resurrected from the dead. Father, give us great joy this morning as we meditate on this great reality. This is the worst life gets here and now for the Christian. Because the life to come is first and foremost in the presence of Christ. And the benefit of that 
being that there is no death, there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no worry. And Jesus will wipe away every tear and heal every disease. And He does it all for His glory that we would delight in Him. What great joy that gives us and fills us with, Father. Do that this morning. Help us to leave here with great joy and satisfaction in an empty tomb. We love you. We thank you. We are grateful for your work in Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.